Well, please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7, the Gospel of Mark chapter 7. The great Galilean ministry of Jesus has come to an end. He has entered a new phase in his ministry where his focus will now be on training the 12. It's not long before Jesus will go to the cross and die and depart the earth. And he needs to invest in the 12 to prepare them to bear the mantle of responsibility after he has left the earth. But as our study this morning will indicate, he's not finished ministering to the masses. Yes, his focus is going to be more on training the 12, but he's not done ministering to the masses. Now, from verses 24 to 30, last time, we learned that Jesus had ventured north of Galilee into the the Gentile region of Tyre, part of ancient Phoenicia. He was looking to find some time alone with his disciples, but as often happened with Jesus, that time was interrupted by a, a woman, a Gentile woman, a Syrophoenician woman who had a desperate need. Her little daughter was possessed by a demon. And from that scenario, we learned certain uh, things about Jesus. We learn more about his great love and compassion. Eventually, he gave her exactly what she wanted, and he healed her daughter. We see a wonderful display of Jesus' almighty power. Mark, writing to his Roman audience, is majoring on the power of Jesus, his power over disease and over death and over demons. And here's an instance where, without a word, this demon is cast out. We also see another example of the wisdom of Jesus. As he puts this woman to the test, at first not seeming to want to give heed to her request, what is he doing? He is strengthening and improving her faith, as he does with his disciples still. And as that woman demonstrated great faith, we are reminded how much Jesus appreciates faith that is directed to himself, how he praises faith in himself, and even at times marvels at faith. And so Jesus gives this little crumb to this Gentile woman, but he's not done with his feasts of blessing. Because after that event with the Syrophoenician woman, the next event that Mark records is, um, finds Jesus again in the midst of the multitudes, the multitudes clamoring after him. And Mark chooses to zero in on a notable miracle of healing, the healing of a, a deaf man who cannot hear and who is also at least partially dumb and cannot speak. So our text is verses 31 to 37. Follow as I read. Again, he went out from the regions of, region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue, presumably with the saliva. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, He said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. And he gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They were utterly astonished, saying, he has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. I think this story breaks down neatly into these three points. We're going to see the case 
of a deaf and dumb man presented to Jesus, and then the cure of the deaf and dumb man performed by Jesus. And then we see how the crowd responds to this healing in a rather paradoxical or seemingly contradictory manner. So first, the case of a deaf and dumb man presented to Jesus, verses 31 and 32. Again, he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, within the region of Decapolis. They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. First, consider the path that Jesus takes. Jesus is already in Tyre, north of Galilee, Gentile territory. He travels 20 miles north through Sidon and comes back around to an area called the Decapolis, 10 cities on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. In other words, he takes a, a, a big loop, kind of a roundabout way. And um, we ask, well, why did he do that? There's no in indication that he did any healings in that venture or, or did any teaching. Perhaps he just wanted to spend some time with the 12. And that travel time was a good occasion for him to spend some concentrated time training his 12 disciples. But then he comes to this area called the Decapolis. Deca is 10. Polis is the word for city. And so it was 10 cities. Apparently, they were founded by the Greeks, maybe Alexander the Great. And so there was a lot of Hellenic or Greek influence, a few Jews, but mostly Gentiles. Uh, they were under Roman control. So they paid taxes to Rome. The men of the Decapolis, the 10 cities, had to serve in the Roman army. But other than that, those 10 cities were given a lot of freedom. And they banded together. They banded together for commercial purposes. They banded together for protection. They had their own army. They had their own coins. And they had their own courts. And so Jesus comes into this area of Decapolis. He evidently wants to avoid going back into Galilee. He would have had his enemies there. And even though Jesus was willing to drink the bitter cup that was destined for him at the cross, he didn't want to precipitate his death before the time. And so he avoided his enemies, and he comes into this region of Decapolis. <clears throat> and so we see the path taken by Jesus. Now the problem of the man brought to Jesus. Verse 32 says, And they brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty. This man was deaf, literally blunt or dull of hearing. The likelihood is that he wasn't born deaf because he could speak with some difficulty, indicating that at some time in his life he was probably able to hear. But now he was deaf and also spoke with difficulty. Literally, he spoke with harsh or thick voice. In other words, his speaking was unintelligible. People could not understand him when he spoke. Brothers and sisters, think about the condition of this man. It's easy for us who have our physical faculties intact to take these precious gifts for granted. Hearing is a wonderful blessing, isn't it? Think of the delights that come to you by being able to hear sounds. Just the everyday sounds that put you in touch with the world around you, the rustling of the wind in the trees, the cranking of the motor of your engine when you start your car, the laughter of children playing, the chirping of the crickets on a quiet night, the singing of the birds, the whir of a microwave, the sound of water either from the faucet or from a bubbling brook, 
this deaf man could hear none of those sounds. Think about the gift of music. Some of you appreciate music more than others because you're more knowledgeable about it. Uh, but all of us enjoy music to some degree or another. Music is a powerful medium, a powerful gift, a wonderful gift that God has given us. It moves our souls. It can quiet the raging soul. It can motivate us to do a lot of good things. And sometimes it's just the pure aesthetic beauty of, of, of music. We will delight to come tonight to a hymn sing because as Christians, music and singing is important to us. The Bible says God has put a new song in our mouth. And singing is a means of our worship to God, and it's also a means of edification as we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What a blessing music is to us, in particular, as Christians. But for this man, he was denied the gift of being able to hear. He lived in a world of virtual silence, which we could hardly imagine. You think about what a blessing it is to hear the articulated speech of other people. A large part of our social interaction comes through speaking and, and hearing one another, right? Being able to listen to one another, not only to listen to one another's words, but the inflections in our voice and the intonations of our voice by which we understand each other. As Christians, how much verbal communication is meaningful to us as we receive and give words of encouragement and comfort and exhortation and and correction. But this deaf man was shut out from the world of spoken communication. And then think of what a blessing it is to be able to speak, to articulate. You have thoughts. You have ideas. You have plans in your mind. You have convictions. You want to bring words of comfort, words of encouragement, words of exhortation to others. But imagine not being able to speak those words, not being able to vent what is in your heart in terms of your thoughts and your plans and convictions and your emotions of joy and sorrow. This man not only could not speak, could not hear, he could not speak. And whatever he muttered led, left puzzled looks in the faces of people because they couldn't understand what he was saying. Well, in light of these precious faculties that God has given to us, our hearing and our speaking, let's be reminded to thank God for these things that we so easily take for granted. We're able to hear. We're able to speak. Don't just take it for granted. Thank God on a regular basis. Lord, I can hear sounds. I can speak my thoughts. And re be reminded that God has given us these faculties for a purpose, to be a blessing to others and to bring him glory. And when you think about your ears, realize that your ears are given for a purpose, to hear things that are edifying, to hear things that are true and honorable and right and lovely and pure and of good reputation and excellent and worthy of praise. Our ears are not given so that we listen to gossip and slander and malicious talk and silly talk and filthy talk and so having given you the gift of hearing, make sure you use your hearing in a way that blesses you, edifies others, and brings glory to God. And then God has given us the wonderful gift of speech, our tongues. Make sure that we use our tongues to speak words of truth and words of edification 
words that bring glory to God. As the psalmist said, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So we see the path that Jesus took to get to that region where he healed this man. We see the problem of this man. He's unable to hear. He's unable to speak. Now the plea that is addressed to Jesus, the second half of verse 32, and they entreated him to lay his hands upon him. Now the laying on of hands was familiar both to Jews and to um, heathen as, as a means of bringing blessing. And likely the people had seen Jesus lay hands on a lot of people as a means of healing. And so they kind of had their own idea about how Jesus should heal this man. Lay your hands on him, Lord, and he'll be healed. But now consider the cure of the deaf and dumb man that is performed by Jesus. First of all, the procedure that Jesus follows in the cure. Verse 33 and 34, Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began to speak, or speaking plainly. Jesus follows a rather unusual procedure here in healing this man, doesn't he? First, he separates him from the crowd. Now, why does he do that? We're not told, but the commentators point in the direction of the fact that what he did, he did in this man's best interest. The man couldn't hear. He couldn't speak. And imagine him with all the hustle and bustle and clamor of the crowd. When he was healed, he wouldn't necessarily know where it was coming from. And so Jesus takes him away from the crowd. So it's only this man and Jesus so that when he is healed, he knows that the source of the healing was Jesus. Jesus wanted him to know that he was the one who was healing him. And then Jesus puts his fingers into the man's ears. What is he doing? He's using symbolic language to enter the world of this man, to indicate, as one commentator says, something will be done for your ears, and I will do it. And then he spits, presumably on his finger, and he touches the man's tongue with his finger. Again, symbolic language to this deaf and dumb man saying, something's going to be done for your tongue, and I will do it. Jesus wanted this man to know the source of the power that would heal him. It was from Jesus and Jesus alone. And then he looks up to heaven. This is commonly seen in the scriptures you know, my eyes look to the mountains. I look to you, O God, looking up into heaven as a, a picture of appealing to God for help. In this case, Jesus looking up to heaven is probably a statement that, that all that he does, he does in concert with his Father. Everything he did, he did according to the Father's will. He and the Father are one. And so it's a statement about his unity with the Father and the Father's will in looking up to heaven. And so here we see Jesus employing an unusual procedure in healing this man. Later on in chapter 8, he's also going to use spittle in the healing of a blind man. What do we learn from that? What do we learn from the unusual procedure that Jesus followed 
in healing this deaf and dumb man. One thing we learn is that Jesus is not bound to any one means in doing his work. Sometimes he heals by the laying on of his hands, as the crowd was expecting him to do. Sometimes he heals by allowing himself to be touched, like the woman with the flow of blood. Sometimes he heals with a word spoken. Sometimes, as with the Syrophoenician woman, he didn't even speak a word and the demon was cast out. Sometimes he heals in the midst of a crowd. Remember when he healed the woman with the flow of blood? He healed her in the middle of the crowd. And then he called her out publicly. At other times, such as here, he pulls a person away from the crowd and heals him. Jesus is not bound to one means in doing his healings. And as I thought about that, I thought, so it is in the spiritual realm. He brings healing to bodies, but the most important healing he brings is to our souls. He brings salvation to our souls. And doesn't Jesus use a variety of means by which to do that? I mean, everybody in this room who is a Christian has a different story. And there are probably multiple means that God used to bring each of us to himself. Just think about some of the means that God uses. Sometimes he uses the preached word. Both my mother at age 74, and she's still alive at 92, and Diana's mother at age 81, and she went to be with the Lord at 83, both of them were saved in the midst of a worship service. My mother in Downingtown Church, my mother-in-law in Trinity Church in Joppa, Maryland, right in the midst of a service while the pastor is preaching, although not because of what the pastor was preaching necessarily, in one case, yes, they were converted on the spot in the midst of a worship service. I knew a man I worked with years ago who's now an elder in a church who was saved by reading a Gideon's Bible in a hotel. I don't know if Gideon's Bible, if Gideon's organization is still allowed to put Bibles in hotels, but he, he read a Bible in a hotel and was converted. God uses all kinds of means. We have a friend, a dear friend in Maryland who was in a serious car crash and her car was spun around on a highway. Could have easily been fatal. And she came out without a scratch. And as a result, she contemplated God and within weeks was saved. I had a friend from Rockville Church several years ago who was converted when he had a second bout with cancer. He's now with the Lord as a result of that cancer. But I remember him saying, I realized that I was not in control. And as a result of that cancer, he was saved. When I was out in California just last week, I was able to attend seminary class with my son, theology class, and the theology professor shared a personal story of, sadly, how his father died when he was 15 years old. But as a result of that, I can't remember if it was 11 or 14 family members got saved as a result of his father's premature death. God has all kinds of means. Maybe it was seeing Christians and being attracted to their lifestyle. Maybe it was a personal witness from a friend or from a stranger the pastor of New Life Church in Maryland with whom I worked, Paul Hamilton, you know how he was converted? Raised in a Christian home, rebelled against it, and life was going well for him. He was so happy, he was filled with thanksgiving, he said. But as he contemplated, well, who do I thank? He had taken God off the table. Do I thank the universe? He knew enough about the fact that there was a personal God, the God of the Bible, and within weeks he was converted. So sometimes God used, well, says in Romans 2, the kindness of God can lead us to repentance. Generally, it's hardship, but sometimes it's kindness. 
And so what do we learn from that? We learn that we must never tell God what method to use in hearing our prayers to save people. Certainly we want him to honor the means of grace that he has given. But God in his sovereignty uses all kinds of means, not only to heal physically, but to heal our souls spiritually with the gospel. We also want to see from this how personal a Savior Jesus is. That becomes a glib phrase. You know, Jesus is a personal Savior. But here's an aspect of his personalness. Notice that he tailors his dealings with people according to their individual need. One woman he saved in the midst of the crowd and called her out publicly to her chagrin, but it was for her good. With Jairus, he tested his faith. He delayed going to heal his daughter by dealing with the woman. He knew what he was doing. And here, he deals very personally with this man. This man can't hear. He can't speak. I'm going to take him apart from the, the clamor of the crowd, and I'm going to deal with him one-on-one -on -one to calm his soul and to let him know that I am the one healing your ears and healing your tongue. Jesus deals very personally with us. And whatever you're going through now, please know that Jesus has tailored this very personally for your good. He calls his sheep by name. He's not like a chief executive officer who sits in his, his office and has nothing to do with the people working down at the grassroots level in the plant. He doesn't even know them. Not Jesus. Though he's got millions of followers, he calls his sheep by name. Whatever he's doing in your life right now, he knows what he's doing. And he's doing it for you and for your good, even if you can't understand it. So we see how personal a Savior Jesus is. And so we see the procedure Jesus followed in curing the man. And now I want us to see the pathos that Jesus felt in healing this man. I call your attention to what it says in verse 34, looking up to heaven with a deep sigh. Consider for a moment the sigh of Jesus. It certainly gives us some insight into the emotional life of Jesus, right? Jesus is the perfect man in every way. And as I preached a short series on the emotional life of Jesus, he was perfect in his emotions. He's the pattern for us in our emotional life. And Jesus sighed. That was an emotion. The word stenazo means to sigh or to groan. It is used in several other places. And let me just get a sense of the word by showing you where else it's used. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says he doesn't want to be unclothed, but he's groaning until the time that he's clothed with his new body. In other words, he's going to leave his present body and he's going to be disembodied, but his ultimate hope is to be re-embodied with a new body, and he's groaning until he's re-embodied. It's the word used in Romans 8.23, where it speaks of believers groaning in anticipation of the redemption of our bodies. We groan, the whole world groans under the curse, and we with it until we have that redemption body, which is our ultimate goal. It's also used in Hebrews 13.17. Obey your leaders, submit to them. They keep watch over your souls. That would be pastors. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. And apparently the word grief is not with groaning. In other words, you want to be good churchmen so that your pastor is happy and not groaning over you. 
that's a legitimate motivation. So the idea of this sighing and groaning seems to be this. Something's wrong and needs to be made right. The groaning is, is a spiritual misery in experiencing something that is less than spiritually ideal and longing for it to be rectified. The sigh is something's wrong and it needs to be made right. I think that's leading us in the right direction. But what was Jesus' sigh here? What was his groaning? Well, let me tell you what it wasn't. We often sigh, but it wasn't the sigh of Jesus. Sometimes we sigh because of conscious inadequacy. Oh, I've got this job to do. Oh, that's too big. I can't do that. Oh, I got to do that? It's too big for me. And so our sense of conscious inadequacy causes us to groan or sigh. Sometimes we groan with impatient displeasure. We need to make an appointment at a certain time, and all of a sudden the traffic gets bottled up. Oh, no. We groan. We sigh in our impatience, in our displeasure. Sometimes we groan because of disappointed ambition. Oh, I was hoping to get that promotion, but oh, somebody else got it in my place. So we groan. We sigh. All of those groanings, all of those sighings are unbecoming of our perfect Lord Jesus. He didn't groan. He didn't sigh because of any of those things. What was his sigh? First of all, it was a sigh of compassion, awakened by a crystal clear view of the ravages of sin. In front of him was a man made in God's image, made to enjoy God's world, made to have dominion over God's world, made with keen faculties with which he is supposed to interact with the realities around him. But here was a specimen of humanity ravaged by the effects of sin, marred, defaced, bound up in, in slavery to this alien intruder, sin. He couldn't hear. He couldn't speak. And Jesus had a deep consciousness of the contrast between the good that originally came forth from the hand of his, his father in the creation and the ruin that sin had brought to this world. And it wrung from our Lord's heart this sigh. It was a sigh of compassion. Therefore, it was a holy sigh, produced by a perfect love of the good and a perfect revulsion with evil and its effects. But not only was it a compassionate sigh, but it was a benevolent sigh. For Jesus, a sigh wasn't a, oh, what can you do? You know, I feel badly, but I can't do anything. For Jesus, when he was moved with compassion, he had the power and the will to do something about it. So it was a sigh of compassion, yes. It was a sigh of benevolence. Because I'm going, I've come to right what is wrong. Something's wrong, and it needs to be made right. He came to make right what was wrong. So it was a sigh of benevolence. And then, under this second point, the perfect cure performed by Jesus. He looked up to heaven with a deep sigh. He said, Ephpatha, and for his Roman audience who didn't understand Aramaic, he had to translate it, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. The impediment of his tongue was removed. He began speaking plainly. Jesus' cure was perfect, as it always is. Perfect and complete. Well, before we move on to the final point, what further can we take away from, from this sigh of Jesus? What can we learn from the sigh of Jesus? 
Well, we see that Jesus doesn't perform his miracle in a, a mechanical, cold, un, unfeeling way, but with deep pathos, with a deep sigh. He enters the man's suffering with heartfelt sympathy. And we should ask ourselves, what about us? Yes, we sigh in those other ways. We sigh with impatience. We sigh with frustration. But do we have anything, do we know anything of the sigh of Jesus? We should. Uh, we have the mind of Christ. His spirit is within us. We're being progressively pressed into the image of Christ. And so the more we grow in the faith, the more we become like Jesus, the more we should experience emotionally the sigh of Jesus. And again, what is the sigh? It's a sigh that recognizes the disparity between the good that was there in the beginning and the ravages that have been brought about by sin. It's a sigh that mourns over the effects of sin in the world. And we ought to sigh in that way. First, we ought to sigh and groan majorly over our own sin. Do you do that? You find yourself groaning and sighing when you see I'm repeating the same sin over and over again. By now, I should have outgrown this sin, but I'm still falling prey to the sin over and over again. Does it make you groan and sigh and say, oh, wretched man, oh, wretched woman that I am? When words come out of your mouth that are hurtful and unkind and inconsiderate toward your husband, toward your wife, toward your children, your parents, your brothers and sisters, or towards strangers, do you grieve over that? Does it make you groan and sigh? When you see your unbelief, when you see your coldness for the things of God, the littleness of your zeal, how tied your heart is to the things of this earth, your misplaced priorities, your wasted moments, does it cause you to sigh with grief and with repentance, longing for a greater deliverance from sin? But not only should we sigh and groan over our own sin, we ought to do that first, but there's much to sigh and groan about because of the sin around us, isn't there? Especially in this world in which we're living now. Oh my, the truth of God has been trampled underfoot. We're living in the midst of this sexual revolution in which, like in the book of Judges, man is doing, everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes. There's no sense of absolute authority, no sense of God and his moral law. It's been trampled under the feet of men. We're living in this post-truth age, post-modern age, where there is no such thing as absolute truth. I believe Brother Jim spoke about that last week in my absence we're living in a world where A and non-A can both be true, contrary to rationality, contrary to logic. You can't reason with people like that. That's where we are. There's no absolute truth. We're denying the image of God in us. Much to grieve over, much to groan over in our present world. And as we grow into the likeness of Jesus, we have to find ourselves groaning more and sighing more over our own sin and over the sin around us. But finally, we see that the crowd responds to the cure in a paradoxical manner. Par a paradox is a seeming contradiction. And we see that in verses 36 and 37. As the crowd beholds this deaf and, and dumb man now completely cured, able to hear, able to speak, what is their response? Well, verse 36, he gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. 
They were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Now, do you see a contrast between verses 36 and verse 37? In verse 36, he's telling them repeatedly, don't tell anybody. Now, why did Jesus say that? He does that sometimes, often in the Gospels. He doesn't say, the Bible doesn't say, but the reason is probably this. He's only months away from dying on the cross. And you know how people, when they saw Jesus do these miracles, they had an earthly view of the Messiah. They wanted to make him king. And he didn't want the news circulating about his being this Hellenistic wonder worker so that people would clamor to try to make him an earthly king. He wanted to be known as the spiritual redeemer that he was. And so he tries to quell the dissemination of that information. Don't tell anybody. But notice, the more he told them, the more they disobeyed. Now, what do we conclude from that? Well, Jesus' disciples don't disobey him. John 15, Jesus said, and you are my friends if you do what I command you. So on the one hand, the crowd witnessing this miracle, they don't obey Jesus. He says, stop, don't talk to people about it. And they deliberately disobey him. They're not showing evidence that they're true disciples. But then in verse 37, we read they were utterly astonished. And they say he has done all things well. And so you see the praise accorded Jesus by these same people. On the one hand, they blatantly disobey him. On the other hand, they're utterly astonished at what he has done. The commentator William Hendrickson says this. Verses 36 and 37 show that it takes more than admiration and enthusiasm to be a follower of Christ. Many Christ admirers are lost. And this is something we've seen before in the Gospel of Mark. So often, in response to Jesus' miracles, people are astonished. They're amazed. They're literally, in the Greek, knocked out of their senses with awe by the power and the works of Jesus. And yet they show no signs of being his true followers. That's a reminder to us that just to be interested in Jesus, just to admire Jesus, even just to be amazed at Jesus doesn't necessarily make you a true believer in Jesus. The mark of a true disciple is, as it is said in John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And in John 8, 31, Jesus says, if you abide or continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. But as we draw to a close here, notice the words that are spoken by this astonished crowd of onlookers. He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the dumb or mute to speak. What are we to make of these words? He has done all things well. J.C. Ryle thinks that this crowd is saying more than they even understand. And he compares it to Caiaphas, the high priest. When Caiaphas said that Jesus was going to die for the nation, but in John eleven fifty one, it says he spoke this not on his own initiative. Caiaphas unwitting was saying far more than he knew. He didn't see Jesus as a substitute savior, a substitute for sinners. But he said he's going to die for the nation. That man unwittingly was saying far more than he intended to say and even understood. 
And Ryle says, so it was with these people here. When they say Jesus has done all things well. A number of respectable commentators see it as an echo of the words of Genesis 1.31. When after six days of creation, we read, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Jesus has done all things well. God looked at the original creation and said it was very good. Commentators also recognize that in these words, there's an echo of Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, where we read, Then, in this future coming day, fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. The waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah or in the desert. How do we put all this together? Very simply, in the beginning, God's creation was good, very good, and only good. We have a saying today, somebody says, it's all good. It's all good, man. Well, guess what? It was only all good in the beginning of the creation. But in the beginning, it was all good. Everything was beautiful, harmonious, functioning as the creator intended. But then sin entered, and it marred what God had created as good. It brought disharmony and dysfunction, and it brought disease, and it brought death, and it brought damnation to people and to the whole earth, all because of Adam's sin. But right after Adam's sin, sinned, God gave the promise of a redeemer, one born of a woman who would crush the head of the serpent. That was the first gospel promise, which blossoms and unfolds as we go through the Old Covenant. God was promising that as the first Adam brought sin and curse into the world, there would be a second Adam. and He would come to undo the effects of sin. And he would regain for us something even more glorious than that original paradise garden. That one is the Messiah. That is the Christ. That one is Jesus. And by their unwittingly grand statement, he does all things well. These people, largely Gentiles, were acknowledging the fact that this Messiah has come. This second Adam has come. And he has come to bring a new creation. The promised salvation has come, at least in its first stages. And eventually, he will make all things new because he does all things well. Well, in closing, let's bring a few practical implications and applications to us. What does it mean? He does all things well. He's the fulfillment of the Isianic promise of the Messiah and the new creation. It means that we who have entered Messiah's kingdom through faith in Jesus are destined for a more glorious paradise than Adam and Eve knew in the original garden. Christ's salvation is complete and perfect, just like his cure of this man was complete and perfect. But as we know, it comes in stages. It comes in installments, right? We are now currently forgiven of the guilt of our sin. We're now relieved of the reigning power of sin. But as our bodies and our souls tell us, we're not done with the ravages of sin. 
we're suffering in our bodies, in our souls, sin coming out of us, sin coming at us from a sinful world. But as we read in the beginning, I read again, that's all going to change when Jesus comes a second time. And he brings a completion to the salvation that has already begun. We have the first installment. The second installment will be the consummation, where there will be a new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Jesus does all things well. He will complete what he has begun. The salvation begun in you will be completed. A glorified body, a perfected soul, on a new earth, under a new heavens, in the immediate presence of God in Christ. No need for the Son. And we will be there forever in perfect bliss. And then these words, he has done all things well, also mean that even as we live in a world of sin, where we are both victimized by sin and we victimize others, in his dealings with us, he makes no mistakes. Whatever he's doing in your life, he's doing it well. He knows what he's doing. He hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't been too busy over here tending to certain people that, oh, no, I forgot, and this has come upon him, and it was outside of my... No, he knows exactly what he's doing, and he's doing it well. It may not seem good to you. It may not make sense to you. Even Paul was perplexed at times, but never despairing because he knew that God was doing all things well in his life and for his good. God is weaving a tapestry in our life. All these strands seem confusing to us, but one day that tapestry will be very beautiful. We see in a mirror dimly now. We will see more even as this life unfolds, but we will see it perfectly in eternity. God will reveal his wisdom in all of his dealings with us. So please be aware that whatever you're going through, whatever dealings you're having now, Jesus is doing all things well in your life and for you. But then finally, I want to speak to any here who may not be a believer in Jesus. We saw here a man who couldn't hear sounds. What a terrible thing. He couldn't speak. He couldn't utter the thoughts and ideas and convictions of his heart. He couldn't articulate those. He was robbed of his hearing and robbed of his speech. Terrible thing. Thank God for your hearing and your gift of speech. But there is something worse than a loss of physical hearing and physical speech. The Bible says that by nature, we are spiritually deaf and spiritually dumb. By nature, we can't understand the things of the Spirit of God. We can't hear. The law of God, the moral law of God, shouts at us in our unbelief, and we ignore it. The gospel shouts at us with our good news. There's a Savior. You can be forgiven. And people ignore it because they're deaf to the voice of God. And therefore, they can't speak or sing the praises of God. 
There's a condition worse than physical deafness and physical dumbness. It's unable, it's being unable to hear the voice of God spiritually and to speak his praises. Are you in that condition? But is the voice of God beginning to get through to you? Are you beginning to see that all is not right? Not only in the world, but all is not right in my life. There are things I do that enslave me. They're wrong. I know they're wrong. I know I'm guilty. I know there's a God I'm going to face in judgment. I don't want to do these things, but I can't help myself. I'm a slave to these things. And are you beginning to hear the voice that is saying, things are not right with you. Things are not right between you and God. There's a God you're going to face in the judgment. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. You know that's coming. You know you're going to be judged. And you know you're guilty. You know you're guilty. Are you beginning to hear the voice telling you things are not right with you? Things are not right between you and God? And maybe are you beginning to hear the voice that says, there's a way back to God. There's a way I can be forgiven of all of my sins. And it's Jesus Christ. He alone lived a perfect life that you could not live. And he alone died a death in your place so that if you trust in him, God will take all of your sins, dump them on Jesus, punish him, and take all of his perfect goodness and credit it to you as if you had lived that perfect life. That's called justification. God considering you righteous in his sight because of Jesus. Are you beginning to hear that voice? Please heed that voice. Listen to that voice. Open your ears to that voice. Let it speak to you until you are fully convinced. I'm a sinner who needs a savior. Jesus is that savior. Jesus, save my soul. Give my sins. I'm tired of living for myself apart from God in fear, anxiety, fear of death, in bondage to sin. I want to live for you. And put your trust in Jesus Christ and he will save you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for yet another snapshot of our Savior, Jesus. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your great love, your great compassion, the personalness of your care for each one of your children. And we thank you that you do all things well. Everything you've done in our lives so far has been done well. And as you complete that work in us, it will be perfect, and we thank you. Teach us about our Savior, Father, from these words and help us to love him for who he is and to further imitate him as your spirit presses us into his image. We ask in his name.